bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin, we've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. The Colored Orphan Asylum was founded in New York City in 1836. It was the nation's first orphanage for African-American children. The agency weathered three wars, two major financial panics, a devastating fire during the draft riots of 1863, in which over 120 people died and 2,000 were injured, several epidemics, and waves of racial prejudice. And to help us explore this period of American history, we now have as our very special guest, William Sorrell, professor emeritus at Lehman College of the City University of New York, where he taught African-American history for 36 years. And in his book, Angels of Mercy, White Women and the History of New York's Colored Orphan Asylum, Professor Sorrell not only weaves together African-American history of an unsung institution, but also offers us a unique window onto complex racial dynamics during a period of profound change. And Professor Sorrell, welcome to Talking Heart Island. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, well, I'm very happy to have you aboard. And I thought before we dive into your book, uh, an interesting way to begin is for you to tell us about your background. Um, you know, beginning wherever you want to begin. I understand you're not a an original New Yorker, uh, no. but but tell us how you ended up at uh, you know City College and, and teaching African American history for 36 years. Well, I I was born in New Orleans, 1941, but my parents moved to Bremerton, Washington, near Seattle, 1943, for the to work in uh, building ships. So I grew up in Seattle until age 22 and 
I joined the Peace Corps in 1963, went to Ethiopia for two years. And uh, Ethiopia had a very profound influence on my life for two reasons. One was, at that time, there was uh, very little opportunities uh, outside of a few professions for African-Americans. But in Ethiopia, I saw uh, Africans, Ethiopians who were airline pilots, bank tellers, uh, you know, insurance agents, uh, things that were uncommon for black people in America uh, over 50 years ago. So that, that impressed me. And then more importantly was I saw some ancient civilizations, uh, Aksum, where you have these obelisks, both going back over a couple of thousand years, and then Lalibela, where they have 10 churches carved out of rock, uh, out of the mountainside. And again, that's over a couple of thousand years ago. So they both were feats of engineering skills. I never heard of them before I went there. So I was curious. So when I came back, I decided to do some research on my own. And I started graduate school uh, for a doctorate in, in 1972, uh, only because I had opportunity to teach starting in the spring of 1971 in a newly developed Black Studies department at Lehman College. At, at that time, around the country, a lot of Black Studies, Ethnic Studies departments were being organized. And so I decided to go for a doctorate. Uh, I could not get a doctorate in African-American history because it wasn't offered. So I opted for American history with my own individual research in African-American history. And so for all the time since 1972, I've been doing research basically on my own. I only had one course in African-American history uh, on the graduate level and none on the undergraduate level. So during the research, I... Uh, somehow I, I get gravitated towards unknown subjects or people. And uh, as one dean said, I, I sort of specialize in obscure people. <laughs> right. Well, but see, they're not obscure. They're just people who have been forgotten. I mean, the people who had lives and who had records and left papers and had an impact in, in their time periods. So I was able to through my own knowledge and researching uh, to write five books on African-American history, uh, including the one on the orphanage. Before we get to the book about the orphanage, I also understand you spent some time in Vietnam as a teacher. I went to Vietnam in 1967, October 67. I uh, came across a friend of mine who was a Peace Corps roommate for a while, and he came to New York and he's telling me he was going to Vietnam with a group called International Voluntary Services. Never heard of them. And I wasn't that satisfied with my teaching. I was teaching in high school and I decided to, to volunteer. So I went to Vietnam in October 67. I should have stayed for two years, but I was caught up in the war, particularly the uh, Tet Offensive, January the 31st, 1968. Uh, that caused my school to become a refugee center, and it caused a lot of chaos. And I got shot at a couple of times, uh, not seeing who was shooting. And I had an opportunity to come home at the at the organization's expense. So myself and a lot of volunteers who were there, uh, we, we decided just to curtail our, our contracts and come home earlier. So I was, I was there for seven months. What? drew you to this story about the orphan asylum? Uh, several things. One, a friend of mine, uh, Gerald Horn, who's a historian, uh, 
went to the New York Historical Society to do some research and he told me they had a lot of papers on the Arcanist. The only thing I knew at that time was that it got destroyed in 1863. I just thought that was the end of the story. It got destroyed, no more Arcanist. Second, they had a huge amount of papers. They have they have records. They had records of admissions, you know, names and dates and reasons why. They had children were indentured, so they had those records. They had some building records. They had some correspondence, you know, some business records. So they had enough information, and that's always the clue. If you have enough information, and you have the patience, then you have potential for a book. If you don't have the the resources, then you you can't write anything, unless you're going to write a novel. Right. The um, how significant was or were the draft riots of 1863 to the well, orphanage? Uh, well, to the orphanage was dramatic because it destroyed their building. Their building was on Fifth Avenue, and those in New York, Fifth Avenue and Forty Third Street, uh, just uh, a block or so away from the New York Public Library, which at that time they had a reservoir called the Croton Reservoir where they had the water supply for the city. So they were close by, and it was a totally undeveloped area of uh, Manhattan at that time. Nothing like what it looks like today with department stores and jewelry shops and you know, boutiques and restaurants and so forth. So it, it, it destroyed the building completely. It uh, caused total chaos because the children had to be escorted out of the building to a police precinct for their own safety. Uh, and they had to rebuild, but they couldn't rebuild at the same location because neighbors didn't want them to come back fearing that something else might happen. So they relocated to Harlem. So they came to Harlem, uh, actually not very far from where I live. And that was in 1867. And then they stayed until 1907. Then they moved to a section of the Bronx uh, where they, because they were able to sell the property they had in Harlem because at that time in 1907, they were doing the railroad subway construction, so the property values increased. So they made a nice profit by selling in 1907. So the riot was important because it's it's uh, <clears throat> you know, part of, of the history. Uh, some of the children uh, saved clothing. In fact, in, in, 19, uh, in 1936, uh, when what they call the old boys, came with the clothing that he had worn that day in, in 1863. So that was pretty dramatic. And plus, he, he also wrote uh, a narrative describing what was going on at that time. And there are children who were, see, children were indentured at age 12. And so there are children who wrote letters uh, who were very dismayed that their, their home had been burnt down. So they were saying how much they had missed the home that they were nurtured in. And these are kids now like 15 or 16 who were uh, could be anywhere outside of New York City where they're indentured to uh, other families. Uh, although it's referred to as the draft riots, a lot of this turned out to be a racial riot, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's what it was. It was, uh, it was anti-black and anti-abolitionist. So the targets were uh, New York Tribune, which was anti-slavery newspaper. Uh, they they targeted certain uh, abolitionists. See, in those days in New York, you didn't have uh, a building address. 
you had like a nameplate on your door. So there are a couple of people that were looking for them and they took their nameplates off the door. So unless someone said that's the house over there, they have no way of trying to find these people. But something like the Tribune office was obviously stationary, is visible. And then they they uh, they attacked people in the streets. They um, basically executed people. Uh, they were lynched, and and uh, it's, it's unknown the number who were killed. I mean, there are some estimations, but it's still unknown how many were killed. And uh, yeah, it was a race riot uh, in in those sense. The, the black community declined in Manhattan. Some people fled to Brooklyn uh, because in those days there was no bridge going across from Manhattan to Brooklyn. And some fled to uh, New Jersey. So they declined a couple thousand people uh, after the riot. Take us back to the very beginning of the uh, Colored Orphan Asylum. How was it established? Who established it? Who, who were the leaders initially? Well, 1836, uh, you had the, the Quakers who started it, Quaker women, um, you know, Mary Shadwell and, and Anna Shadwell and Mary Murray were the were the three who really got started. But then they had a lot of Quakers. They had prominent women. They had the daughters of Chief Justice John Jay. They had the uh, grandparents and parents of Theodore Roosevelt, the president. Uh, they had people like uh, like uh, Astor, John Jacob Astor. They they had the son of, of Chief Justice uh, Jay. They had uh, a lot of merchants. They had people who were anti-slavery. So there were a lot of prominent uh, people, but the women were the were the foundation. Uh, it was unusual, too, because women were not supposed to be working outside the home. And the fact that they were working with children probably gave them cover because a lot of people thought women working outside the home, they would de-sex themselves to become masculine. Uh, some of the women were married, but a lot of them were, were single. And they were able to get organized. And two, the law at that time uh, said that women could not own property. A married woman couldn't own property because her husband would be responsible. So they had some changes where the husband would not be responsible for the debts of his wife. <laughs> so that was an encouragement so they could go ahead and you know, take their risk, you know, borrow money, uh, invest their money. And so it started off slowly uh, in the area of Greenwich Village uh, in a house, but the numbers kept increasing because there are a lot of children who were either abandoned out in the streets or had both parents or eight parents uh, who died. So you had orphans, you had what's called half orphans. Uh, they might have eight parents, but the parents couldn't support the child or, or children. And then you had uh, some children who were deposited there because their parents were running out of slavery and just couldn't keep the kids with them. So they would drop them off at the orphanage. And you had a few children who were staying there and the parents were paying like, like board because maybe the father couldn't take care of the child himself, but he had enough money to, to pay to have them housed there you know, until they're age 12. So they, they, um, they, um, were able to survive. I mean, they they had um, a lot of a lot of wealthy patrons who helped them. Uh, I have in the book a list of some of the names of people who gave them money in the early years. Uh, Anna Jay, daughter of John Jay, gave them a lot of money, but it was done anonymously. 
and no one knew about it until she had died, and I guess it was in her papers. But she gave them a lot of money, like thousands of dollars, and thousands of dollars then would be worth you know, 20, 30 times what it is at that time. The, uh, the subtitle of your book, White Women and the History of New York's Colored Orphan Asylum, uh, the white women being these uh, <clears throat> initially three Quaker women. <clears throat> Have you done other research on Quakers? I, I, I found that during the 19th century, they always seemed to be at the forefront of major yes. social religious movements, correct? What is yes, it? They, Go ahead. Yeah, they, they, they had organized uh, old, like old folks' homes like the colored home for old people home. Yeah, they were, it's like, we call like do-gooders. See, one time Quakers did own slaves, but the doctrine said you cannot be a slave owner and be a Quaker. So a lot of them gave up their slaves and some were taken to Ohio where they could live in this quasi-freedom. And uh, <clears throat> so they were very active, uh, very active in uh, philanthropy and, and, uh, like helping people with these agencies. And it, the orphanage was dominated by Quakers uh, basically up until early 1900s. Uh, it wasn't until 1939 they had a first black trustee. And then in 1940, they had the, uh, the niece of Governor Herbert Lehman, a first Jewish woman. So up, up for about the first 100 years, it was 99% Quaker women. And they had a few other Protestant women, but they didn't have like any Catholics, you know, in terms of, of the trustees or what they call managers, they were all predominantly Quakers and you know, a few other Protestants. Did your research uncover James McCune Smith? Does yes. he fact, how does he factor into this story? Uh, James McCune Smith uh, went to what they call the, uh, the, uh, the African Free Schools uh, that was established in New York City, uh, segregated schools. Uh, he wanted to become a medical doctor, but no medical school in the United States would take him in as a student. So he went to Glasgow. To That's Scotland. because he was an African-American, correct? Yes, right. yes. He went, to, he went to Scotland where he got a uh, bachelor's and master's and a medical degree. He came back. Uh, he had his own pharmacy, and he came, became for about 20 years the physician at the orphanage. Uh, James McCune Smith was a radical abolitionist. And I'm sure some of his theories, policies, his proclamations weren't that well accepted by the managers of the orphanage because they were trying to remain neutral. They, they didn't want to be known as an anti-slavery institution, even though uh, many of the managers did profess that belief. Because obviously you're trying to raise funds and you're trying to raise funds from everybody. You don't want to alienate a certain group of people who might give you money. But he, he was a radical abolitionist. Uh, he certainly supported the theory John Brown's attack at Harper's Ferry and kind of came to the conclusion that maybe violence was needed to end slavery. Uh, he died in 1865, uh, uh, succumbed to disease like a lot of people in those days. Some of his children had died from diseases as well. But he uh, was very relevant because he, he, he debunked some of the racial theories about black health. You know, a lot of people... Uh, said that black individuals were genetically inferior and therefore susceptible to diseases. And his argument was, no, it was poverty that caused them to have diseases. So that was a major revelation you know, in the mid-19th century. Did your research take you to 
any writings of uh, children who were children at the orphanage, but then uh, grew up and, and commented on their experiences? Uh, well, there were several things. One, I mean, children wrote letters to either to the uh, superintendent or the managers or one of the trustees as they were indentured, you know, describing their new life. Some wrote letters some years later thanking the orphanage for guiding them in their youth, you know, because they they were given religious instructions and morality instructions. So in their early 20s, you know, they looked back and they appreciated what happened. Uh, probably the most famous um, uh, young person there was James Henry Gooding, who came out of North Carolina as a slave in uh, 1837. Uh, he left the orphanage and he was indentured. Most of the children indentured didn't stay for their duration. They're supposed to be age 12 to 18. And for various reasons, a lot of them just stopped and they ran away or, and uh, stopped their indenturing. But he stopped his and he moved up to... Um, Massachusetts, and he reinvented himself. He created a birthplace in New York. Uh, he he created uh, an education that he didn't have outside of the orphanage. In fact, someone wrote a book uh, that dealt with his poetry. He was a poet at times, and he wrote for some of the newspapers in, in New England, and she couldn't find his records. I can't find family records. I can't find uh, records in the in the uh, census and so forth. And she was perplexed. And her book came out years before I did my research. And I knew from my research he was raised in the orphanage. Uh, he wrote a letter to President Abraham Lincoln in 1864. He joined the famous 54th uh, Massachusetts Regiment, the one that was featured in the movie Glory oh, with yes. Denzel Warren, Morgan Freeman. And he wrote a letter to President Lincoln because at that time the colored soldiers got less salary. They got $10 a month minus three for clothing, and white soldiers got $13 a month plus the clothing. So he wrote a letter to President Lincoln. He basically said, are we soldiers or are we laborers? And if we are soldiers, then you need to pay us the same fee as you pay white soldiers. So it was a very well-known letter during the Civil War years. He um, got captured, and he died in a prison camp in uh, Georgia, a uh, prison camp called Andersonville, uh, run by a German immigrant. Mm -hmm. uh, it was so notorious for mistreatments that the uh, commander of that prison was executed. He's, he's the only person executed during the Civil War for what we call war crimes. So, yeah, James Henry Gooden was well-known. I mean, there are other people who became successful, you know, became successful nurses, lawyers. Uh, I, actually, I met some. I met some who were there in the early 1940s. Uh, I had some from my home for luncheon. I was about around 2002 when I was doing research. So I, I had them come to my home for luncheon, and I asked them why were they in the orphanage. Some One was there because his mother died when he was born, and his father couldn't take care of him. Several of them said they just ran away, kept running away. So the courts sent them. But they were, we call it delinquents. So the courts sent them to the orphanage. And they all became out, they became out, well, I mean, one was police officer. You know, several became nurses or school teachers. And they all thought that they were given the proper instructions in life. And they, in fact, they even said they need to bring them back. Because <laughs> right. they shouldn't have kids. 
shouldn't have kids like in juvenile detentions. You should have something like an orphanage. So there's a debate now because back in the 1920s, the debate was you don't need an orphanage. You need children in homes like uh, foster care homes. So there was a trend to to uh, de-establish the orphanages, but some people are now calling for a return of them. Fascinating. In the minute or so we have left, I ran into this doing some other research, but I wanted to ask you, were any of the cemeteries in New York City segregated? Uh, yes, they all. Well, uh, for example, the children initially were buried in a Presbyterian cemetery uh, on Houston Street. And I went by the location. Now there's it's all covered over with buildings. They were buried there. Then they were buried in Greenwood Cemetery, which is a very well-known cemetery in Brooklyn, where you have a lot of famous people who are buried there. And uh, they were buried there. They had a big plot, and then once the plot was filled, they had to go elsewhere. And then some were buried in Tr- Trinity Cemetery uh, in Harlem, which is another well-known cemetery. And then they were buried in, in uh, Westchester, another cemetery. In Westchester, recently, about three years ago, I went, they had a large plot where they had uh, a favorite nurse and number of children were buried there, but there was no marker. So they put up a, a monument with all the names of the uh, those who are there to give them that kind of recognition. But yes, uh, cemeteries were segregated. Uh, there's a lot of cemeteries initially were around churches and, and the churches were segregated, particularly in the burial grounds. Right. Professor Sorrell, how can uh, our listeners uh, find out what you're up to, get a, an idea of the books that you've written? Uh, do you have uh, well, your own website? or? I don't have a website. Uh, if you go under my name, William Sorrell, S-E-R-A-I-L-E on Google, uh, or you type my name under Amazon Books, and you have my books. Uh, only only two are still in print. Um, the others are out of print, but even out of print books are available somewhere. Some used bookstores have them, mostly for outrageous prices. That's right. But I have, I'm on YouTube. Uh, some of my uh, interviews are in YouTube. So you can find me that way. And uh, if you want to contact me directly, it's uh, yahoo.com. So W S E R A I L E at yahoo.com. If you have if you have questions about what I said today, or you know questions in general about um, African American history, because the thing is, uh, when I first started teaching at Lehman College, it was a brand new department, just started about six months earlier. A lot of the fellow uh, professors in history department, that was Black Studies department, a lot of them thought it was like Mickey Mouse courses; anything was relevant. But over years, you know, more respect came forth. And now today, people can get a, a doctorate in African-American studies in England, France, Germany, Japan. Uh, a lot of universities in America uh, offered undergrad degrees in, in uh, African-American studies. If not degrees, they have courses, you know, programs. Uh, it's interesting because uh, about 30 years ago, I wrote a, a letter to a local radio station that's all news. And I suggested that maybe in February they do about a minute or two on little sketches of African-American history. And the polite answer I got basically was, who cares about this? <laughs> but now the same same radio station does it. 
Well, and, we certainly care. <laughs> and yeah, we're just really, tricky. really thrilled to uh, have you on our uh, program, uh, Talking Hard Island. And uh, Professor Sale, thank you very much. Uh, quite welcome, Michael. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. Music